flipping conventional wisdom on its head. You are listening to John Gerica on SAFM. John in for Songezo today. Good evening, if you've just joined us. Let's start with, it says here, criminal philanthropy is used to buy local legitimacy, favorable publicity, and to keep local people on your side, according to experts. Well, let's talk to criminologist and lecturer of political science at the University of Stellenbosch, Professor Guy Lamb. Prof, great chatting to you. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. It's my pleasure, John, and good evening, and good evening to your listeners. It, it, it's a very big word, criminal philanthropy. In essence, um, criminals buying favor from locals and, and keeping, their, keeping their bad things undercover. In a way, yes. I mean, uh, and this is nothing new. I mean, it's certainly not unique to South Africa. We've seen it happening throughout the world, mm. you know, especially in parts of Latin America, but even historically. I mean, you know, it's often referred to as the Robin Hood phenomenon, um, where it kind of tends to be romanticized, where, you know, you kind of rob from the rich and you give to the poor, but it's not just about redistribution of wealth, but it's about protection in many respects. So, I mean, what we're seeing in, in many parts of South Africa, and there tends to be a focus on the Cape Flats because it's quite a high concentration of gangs that operate there and organized criminal networks and quite uh, kind of acute uh, nature of the, of the drug trade there. So you're seeing, and we certainly saw it in the lockdown as well, where, you know, sort of gang leaders in certain areas do provide resources to residents that live in the areas in which they operate. And, you know, sometimes these things are purely philanthropic philanthropical in the sense of, you know, there's desperate need in the community and, mm. you know, kind of a gang leaders, you know, kind of sees poverty and desperation on his doorstep or her doorstep because there are female gang leaders as well. And then, you know, provide charity for that. But in many circumstances, as often there is a, a con- other considerations that come into account. And it often is about protection. It's the sense of around if you are providing support to, you know, poor communities in which you live and operate, that they will look after you. So they will either, you know, when the police come looking for witnesses on certain crimes, um, you know, the community members who receive support from you aren't going to cooperate with the police actively. It's also about you needing, you know, community members, you know, aunties, um, you know, kind of other people in the community who can hide things for you, can stash your drugs and your stolen goods and your weapons. So it is about building favor um, by using the resources that you have. So that's, that's often the case that happens. But we've also seen some other things, and I've had conversations with, with um, doctors working, you know, in sort of, I won't mention the hospital, man, but in the hospital where, um, you know, kind of gunshot victims have come in. Mm-hmm. And um, what's happened is, you know, they've been treated in the hospital recovering, and then, you know, sort of gang leaders will send in representatives of this specific gang or organized criminal group who will then go and speak to the parents or the patients or the family members and say, if you don't cooperate with the police, if you don't give testimony, if you don't go to court, you know, we'll incentivize it so mm-hmm. these sort of things will flow your way. And, of course, if that doesn't work, then the kind of more punitive threats happen. Right. But, I mean, I've heard a number of stories of sort of, you know, patients, gunshot victims and patients, particularly from kind of high gang areas who that's happened. And, of course, if you come from a poor family and, you know, you have a kind of a gang leader or gang representative that's offering you money or offering you kind of groceries or offering you school fees, you know, you're going to say, well, mm. do I take my chances in court and, you know, likelihood of I'm going to get, you know, there's going to be further victimization or, you know, kind of take the support. So I can completely understand where, where people are coming from with this. Uh, we're going to play a quick ad in a moment, but this is, it goes against what I always imagine gangsters to be, where they would threaten you to pay them protection money as opposed to them mm-hmm. giving you money for their protection. Sure. I mean, do you want me to jump in or do you want no, to no, have no. your ad? All right, so let's, let's get an answer and, and get an explanation about uh, the, 
what, what would you call it? The, the soft approach for protection, I guess, well, is the answer. Well, it, it, it varies from gang to gang. I mean, it's, it's, this is very much the case with established gangs in areas where they kind of feel comfortable and unthreatened but need to build support networks. It's when gangs are trying to move into uh, into areas, it's typically when they take the aggressive stop, right. and it's usually when they're sort of lower-down gangs. So we're seeing those sort of extortion happening largely around businesses, and that's something that's gained momentum since the lockdown. So particularly gangs, you know, having to um, kind of expand their kind of area of, of operation beyond traditional kind of drug trafficking, and there always were extortion gangs around, but you're seeing a lot more gangs moving into the extortions. They're using threats of violence or actual violence. That's why we've seen some mass shootings in parts of the country, particularly in Cape Town, um, where they've kind of gone to threaten businesses and use violence that other businesses will pay out. So it's not just, it's not that black and white, unfortunately. Right. My guest is Professor Guy Lamb, criminologist at Stellenbosch University. We're going to take your calls and messages on this as well. You can send us a voice note, 0614-104-107. You can remain anonymous, but uh, are you part of this? Have you experienced this in your life? We'd love to hear from you. We'll continue the conversation in a moment. SMS SAFM now on 41391. Tweet at SAFM Radio and at John Herika. It's the viewpoints on SAFM. John Herika in for today. My guest is Professor Guy Lamb, criminologist at Stellenbosch University, talking about criminal philanthropy, how support from desperate poor communities is bought by gangsters and individuals. Uh, Prof, yeah, I've always wondered, when, when you hear these stories about gangsters that are horrifically murdered or, or die in other ways, are, yeah, they're seen as heroes by the community. This is part of that, right? I mean, it really depends, and it depends on, on who the gangster is. I mean, if he is kind of a key example of Colin Stansfield, who was a you know notorious but also well-respected kind of gang leader on, on the Cape Flat, so kind of very senior in the kind of gang hierarchy, and, you know, he was, you know, the authorities went after and eventually caught him on sort of tax evasion, um, and he subsequently passed. But, you know, he was he was well known for giving, um, you know, kind of cash and other support to to the communities where he operated and lived. So he was kind of known for that. So in that kind of way, he, he celebrated very much around the heroes. And if they are, you know, seen as contributing to the community and giving back to the community that support them. Obviously, those who, who are seen as more as the kind of the schoolies, the low-level gangsters, mm. the footsies, who are, you know, who are already just preying on community members. If they die, then, then communities tend to celebrate them. But it's very much the more senior figures who have a kind of a uh, kind of aura around them of kind of being these community leaders, but engaging in kind of gang activities, but the sense of around that they are giving back to the community. So that's always, you know, that's not necessarily a, a kind of a South African thing, but we've certainly seen it, as I said before, mm-hmm. in Latin America, you get this, it happens as well. So it is very much around seniority and about the extent to which they behave, because you'll have these individuals who might be very well loved and kind of seen as kind of, you know, respected by many community members, but also behind the scenes, they may be involved in ordering hits um, and attacks on other gangs. So as, as I said, it very much does depend on, on from individual to individual. Uh, there is still, Prof, an underlying fear. It's all very well a gangster coming to you and giving you money, but you kind of know that you it's difficult to get out of. You can't say, well, okay, I'm going to go to the police one day because uh, you, you can't extort the gangster because they know <laughs> they know who you are. I mean, the situation often is resources are provided as kind of like, um, uh, it's, it's kind of like you're, you're investing in someone and investing in a family that if something happens, you can call in on, on that favor. Mm. And that's often what happens. 
I mean, in many cases, it is sometimes it is just pure charity around sort of desperation, and, and that does happen. And um, often you've got, for example, gang leaders who are not no longer living in the neighbourhoods they grew up in, and they're living in wealthier areas. And we do see this in, the, in Cape Town and around the world. Who will go back and you know take resources back into those communities because it's around them, you know, giving back to it, but also getting kind of status. And that often happens with successful business people as well who make their money legitimately and will go back to their hometowns and, and you know flash their money around. Yeah. Um, that that's there, but it is the point that you make is often if you take money from gangs, then you get caught in this in this kind of environment. But also for many community members around, if you're unemployed, you don't have any jobs coming in and gangs are offering you some sort of money, yeah. you often will take it. But of course, if it's linked to you know a family member getting involved in gangs, then that becomes really tricky because in certain circumstances, of <laughs> providing cash and the expectation is that you know a family member will have to join the gang or engage in, in kind of criminal activities with the gang. So it is you know kind of very hard choices that often families have to make. You spoke about community leaders, um, reports about religious leaders who are also criminally uh, doing criminal activity at the same time. That must be difficult because uh, a man of God, a church leader, might be somebody that the community looks up to a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's one of these these kind of difficult ones because you've had circumstances where you've had, um, you know, from communities where someone who's been a senior member of a gang wants to change their life and then often the way out is to find, you know, through religion and mm-hmm. many are very charismatic, respected people in the community. So we'll set up religious organizations and, you know, be be kind of gain sort of newfound respect there. But sometimes we have situations where that is really just a, a sham. That's where the, the religious organization is set up as a front to launder money for the gang. Um and often that's around, you know, it's an accusation of, you know, there's still one foot in the church and one foot in the gang. And uh, so these kind of issues, you know, always are, you know, one has to interrogate them very carefully before one can say is this a legitimate move that's happened. But certainly we have seen cases where, you know, religious organizations have been set up really just as a front to kind of lord the cash, mm. you know, kind of drug money coming in and then right. to kind of make it look legitimate. Uh, how does, how do you... It's it's like how does the community? You know, we hear the police always asking the community for help catching gangsters. With with this all over the place, how do how does a community member get out of it, or how does a community member report a gangster, or is it just like, well, that's just the way it is? They've been bought. Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, obviously, you've got lots of people. If you look at you know certain like areas, like in in St. Mitchell's Plan, for example, so you've got you know a number of. They're really, really powerful gangs that are operating in that area, but also you have a number of very prominent, honest and brave community members, community leaders, community organizations that stand up to gangs. And obviously, you know, report matters to the police and do those kind of issues. Um, but, it, you know, for your average person, you know, operating, I suppose, in a community where gangs are very influential and very present, going to report gangsters to the police is a very dangerous, life-threatening experience. It's that you know, the chance for you or family being targeted if you're if you're not gonna go through, you know, get witness protection. Mm-hmm. Of course that does vary from case to case whether the police are gonna provide that to you or not, but in many cases you won't get it. So hence but not you, even, you kind of But not even that, yeah. you could, you're also not maybe gonna get food or electricity for uh, whenever because the gangsters are are paying for that. No, well I mean if you are economically dependent on gangs to provide that to you. I mean, you know, it's it's it, 
you can have a kid. It's going to be highly unlikely that a person's going to go to, to report you to the police. And then, right. of course, okay. you've got tragedies in the family where, you know, again, you know, you're receiving the support from a gang, but then that gang actually murders a you know, family member. Sure. And then that might be a turning point for the community, for that okay. particular family. Mm. So that's the circumstance. And the the socioeconomic climate doesn't help. The more people becoming unemployed, uh, the more gangsters there are because there's a safe way or there's a way out of of the the desperate poverty, and it just starts uh, snowballing. I mean, certainly. I mean, it's, it's, we don't know if, if if you know the economic consequences of lockdown have kind of increased the size of the gang, but that's a difficult one to tell. But certainly, what it's done is it's made life easier for gangsters. Is that in terms of you know, you're able to recruit a lot more people to support your particular cause. Um, I think in terms of the, the the kind of types of income-generating activities that gangs had pre-COVID, mm-hmm. there was a lot more diverse and there was, you know, kind of some easy money. And, of course, that tightened up with, as less people have jobs, businesses have gone out of business. You know, you have to kind of think differently, and that's why there's been a lot of this move towards extortion of businesses that typically weren't extorted, like coffee shops and bazaar right. shops and these kind of issues. Um, but, you know, certainly it's made a lot more people vulnerable to recruitment into gang networks, and so not necessarily becoming gangsters, but certainly being kind of enrolled by gangs and being provided with support and then expecting loyalty in return. Guy, just before you go, my guest, Professor Guy Lamb, is uh, my guest. Let's go to Aisha in Uppington. Hi, Aisha. We've got time for you tonight. Aisha. Hi, Ronnie. Hi, go ahead. I say good evening, John. I find it ironic that two white settlers are discussing the descendants of the Koi and San uh, under the banner of, uh, what's it? Criminal philanthropy. Now, let me tell you what criminal philanthropy is. Look at national parks and and look at the agreements, and that is criminal philanthropy. Look at the the, the mining claims that 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 poor did, and those poor miners still didn't get their money. So, if you're talking about cr- criminal philanthropy. Look at the white-collar crime. That's one. Two, the South African government is responsible that gangsterism and the poverty-stricken areas where the Korean fans descendants live have not been addressed in 28 years. No? Okay. Aisha and Uppington. Good point, uh, Prof. Guy Lamb. White-collar crime, it, it's there as well, isn't it? Where where money is paid and we hear about bribes all the time? I mean, point of view, I mean, if we have a broader definition of criminal philanthropy, it's there. But I think the important point to note around the kind of organized crime networks is, you know, kind of we weren't making specific kind of racial connections here. <laughs> it's all connected, like mm. in the sense of around the white-collar criminals. And I think what what sort of state capture reports in the Zondo Commission has shown is that you've got kind of the white-collar criminals, those involved in state capture, are connected to other forms of, of kind of organized criminality. And mm. in the sense of kind of gangs were recruited, and there's fairly good evidence around the role of the gangs connected to the state capture project. So these kind of things are all connected, and certainly that criminal philanthropy, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it at the, the white-collar level, at that high level, whether it's philanthropy, that is like this kind of pure corruption and patronage that goes on right. in the development of those networks. 
but of course they're very similar. Um, and that, I mean, the important point to be made about organised crime, and we're having to focus on, on, on the Western Cape as part of the conversation, but, I mean, we get this sort of environment within Europe, and we're seeing the kind of connection between, you know, kind of high-level corruption and even kind of tripping down to, to the different forms of, of gangs there, and it's sort of a big problem around kind of motorcycle gangs in mm. certain areas and their involvement in the drug trade. So I think the kind of difference we very much have in South Africa is, this, is the kind of stark inequality that we've seen. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of the Sons of Anarchy TV show. It's 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 a drug and and gun underworld, and they pay the money and they get the support from the locals by giving them a little bit of money. It, it's just it's like a movie, and it's difficult to imagine it all happening for real. Absolutely, Professor Gala, thank you very much for for your your views into that Criminolo- criminologist and lecturer of political science at the University of Stellenbosch. Love to get your views on that. We're going to have some time for your calls. Uh, if you have views like Asia, please give us a call at double one seven one four two double six, or you can send us a WhatsApp voice note right now on oh six one four one zero four.